0: ezekiel thirty seven we are going through the book of Ezekiel and um, this is this is probably this is the passage that um, if you know one passage from the book of Ezekiel, you know this one yes, the valley of dry bones in fact, um, if you remember um, if you pay attention during the announcement loop, you may not pay attention. The whole idea of it is to let you know what's going on. But if you pay attention, you'll notice that on the announcement slide for the book of Ezekiel, the series that we're doing here Sunday nights, uh, there is a painting of this very scene. Uh, Now, I'm sure it's not uh, a, a perfect representation of what it looked like, but it's Ezekiel standing over this valley that's full of dry bones and God calling him to prophesy to them. This is the, the scene. Um, the scene where, to put it quite bluntly, um, this is the place where, and pardon the pun, I'm so sorry. This is the place where it really, God's promise really comes to life. Um, for me, a couple of years ago, I went to preach this text And when I went to preach this text, I was at a church that I was filling in the pulpit. I had been teaching, or I had been uh, talking to the deacons about the possibility of being an interim pastor. I walked in that Sunday with the understanding that I was there to preach, okay, right? Uh, By the time I left, I was their interim pastor, okay? I did not know they were going to vote on me that morning. That was just something they had decided without telling me until that morning. And, and around Sunday, about close to the beginning of Sunday school time, the chairman of the deacons comes up to me and he says, well, if it's all right with you, after the service, we're, we're going to vote to call you as our interim pastor. And I said, oh, <laughs> okay. What I didn't realize, uh, because God likes to do this kind of stuff, is he had me preaching this text. Uh, which is a very, this is a good text to preach if you're ever preaching in view of a call. It's it's that kind of a text, can the bones live. Um, So I preached this text, was then called as an interim pastor. So this is a place that when I come to this point of Scripture, um, it's kind of an interesting place for me because on the one hand, I didn't really mean it to be but it was a sermon that God put it at the right place at the right time. And I, you know, I'm just thinking God's just giving me something to preach. Uh, what I don't realize is that he's, through that, was calling me to a place of ministry. So as I preach this, uh, forgive me, but this is, this is just a text that's near to my heart. Ezekiel 37 The book of Ezekiel we've been talking about, um, God has spoken to the prophet about the judgment that is coming on Israel. And for most of the first 24 chapters, with the spare exception here and there, little bits and pieces here and there, it's pretty much doom on Israel. God is going to judge them. He is going to judge them for their sins. He is going to judge all of them for all of their sins. And he's going to leave a remnant, but it's a lot of judgment. And then he starts to turn toward judging the other nations. And remember we started this series in chapter 33 talking about Ezekiel's call as a watchman, how that was like a second calling. How now that God has dealt with the sin, he he can move in a new way among his people. And he really wants to drive this point home with Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, more than any other prophet, he's got to be a visual guy because God deals with him so much in visions. From the very beginning of the book, God is showing him visions. Ezekiel's got to be the kind of guy that has to see it. Some of you are that kind of person. Some of you are the person that can hear it and you're good. You know it. You hear it spoken and you remember it. You hear it. You hear someone's name and you remember their name. You hear one piece of information and you can't get it out of your head. It doesn't matter... You know, all the other things. Once you hear it, you've got it. But some of you are visual. Some of you have to see it. I'm that way. I'm visual. So when I took tests in school, I could picture in my head the page of the book that that definition was on. That question dealing with it, I could picture the page where that was and I could see where on the page that description was. I know that sounds crazy to some of you, but that's just the way my mind works. I'm a visual learner. You would think I'd be good at reading, but I'm not good at reading because it's too many words. I need pictures. <laughs> I, need, I need something I can see. I need a table or something that I can kind of organize the data visually so I can really grab a hold of it. That's, I think, the kind of way Ezekiel was because God keeps giving him these visions, these these dreams, these sights, things to drive the point home. And he wants to drive the point of Israel's restoration home with his prophet. So what does he do? Well, he shows him a situation of total despair. Look in verses 1 and 2 of Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Israel was completely and totally despaired. She was grasped within the cruel, cruel tyranny of Babylon, yearning once again. Because of her tremendous yoke, if you remember just some probably 800 years, 900 years earlier, they were crying out in anguish in a slavery in a place called Egypt. And now here they are again. She was dead, long since cast out to rot. In fact, rotted so much the bones were dry, very dry. There was no hope. No flesh upon them. In its prior form, Israel was completely gone. No hope of revival. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah had been scattered and dismembered. How can that kind of destruction ever be reclaimed? Rebuilt. You might say today that we're a valley of dry bones. The Big C church is shrinking and ineffective in a culture that's slowly becoming more antagonistic to godliness and Christian ideologies. The church, in modern thought, is all but dead. Zombified by years of neglecting our first love and the disciplines of Christ likeness, we have no lasting influence, no waiting presence in the public square. It's not because we've neglected to participate in public affairs or governmental proceedings, it's solely because we left the scripture and its sole source of authority. It's like we've taken the scripture and we've put it up on the upper shelf to collect dust rather than constantly applying the truths of our songs and preaching. Orthopraxy, right practice, has been long since minimized in our very lives had fled with its gradual departure. It could be said we are in a situation of total despair. So God, looking at Ezekiel, watching his prophet seeing these dry bones, he asks him a question of grave importance. Verse 3. And he said to me, son of man, Can these bones live? In the midst of the valley, surrounded by death and despair, God asked the solemn question Can these bones live? Throughout Scripture, God asked questions of men. He asked Adam, Where are you? And Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He asked Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Whenever God asks a question, it's not because he seeks wisdom or counsel. Rather, God asks questions in order to give counsel, in order that men will know him better and become aware of his own need for a savior. The question, can these bones live, seeks out the faith of the prophet. Does he, even the man of God, doubt that God is able, capable of bringing life forth from death, hope from the midst of grave despair? See, the Messiah's purpose is just that. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Messiah restores the nation that was dead and completely disfigured and creates a living priesthood whereby he exercises dominion over the nations. But God must first instill within their hearts a faithful anticipation of future glory. He must implant hope into his hopeless people. Can these bones live? And Ezekiel's caught off guard. I mean, you're looking at a valley full of dry bones. You're looking at dry bones everywhere. And the question posed is, can these bones live? He's kind of caught in a catch-22. He says, um, uh, uh, well, um, uh, I, I, really, um, I really don't know. Tell me, please, because I'm completely lost on this one. We would all love to say that we would be the ones to say, yes, Lord, they can live. You can do anything. But all too often our faith is much, much more wishy washy than that, isn't it? At best we might say, uh, I don't know, it's a long shot. We may even completely doubt. No chance. Ezekiel, you can hear his stuttering. Oh Lord God, you know. You tell me. Maybe he wants to believe, but it sounds too far-fetched. They're already stripped of any evidence of life. How can they live again? Even in his lack of faith, Ezekiel finds that God is still faithful. And he implants his faith into the prophet. His grace really is perfect in our weakness, isn't it? So God gives Ezekiel a mission of simple obedience. Verses 4 through 6. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinus upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Well, there it is again. (laughs) There it is again. We can't get away from that idea. Then you shall know, can we? God tells Ezekiel, Prophesy. Prophesy. Literally, the idea is repeat after me, to declare by inspiration. God enables us to do his will and empowers our actions through his spirit. This is is one of the most crucial elements for the prophets. They are willing to obey even the most simple and sometimes even oddest commands that God gives them. The prophet must be willing to say specifically that which God says, to do completely that which God commands, to go immediately there which God commands of him. Their obedience is simple in that it's undaunted by obstacles. It's undefiled by the prophet's own designs. It is neither easy nor intelligible apart from the Spirit of God working within the prophet. By prophesying to the bones, Ezekiel is putting into play the most effective effort at God's disposal the declaration of his word. By his word, the universe came into being. God called to light, and light had to come into existence to answer the call. God creates whole galaxies with nothing more than his breath. He tells Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word. He's talking about the water cycle. How water pours down in rain on earth and how it floods into rivers, eventually into the seas, and it's evaporated back up into the sky to start the process all over again. And in the process, it causes crops to grow. It causes trees and life to flourish in that means. And he says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It does not. It shall not, it cannot return to me void. It will do what I set it out. It will accomplish the purpose that which I purpose it. It shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. God's word is by itself so powerful that it does its work just because it's God's word. Just because of the one who speaks it, it makes good on what God intends for it to do. He tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.12, Then the word of the Lord came to me. You have seen well. He's Jeremiah has seen this almond tree. And we lose it because of translation. But in the Hebrew, the word for almond and the word for watching are just a letter apart. He says, you've seen well. Because I'm watching over my word. I'm showing you the almond tree because it's the earliest tree to grow fruit. There are almonds on the almond tree far before most any other plant. In the dead of winter, when things are just starting to frost out, when things are just starting to try to come back to life, the almond tree is flourishing. It's an early sign of things to come. And so God shows the almond, the watching tree, so to speak, and he says, you've seen well because I'm watching over my word to make sure it happens. Even now when you can't tell in the bleak midwinter, as one hymn writer would put, even when it looks like God is completely abandoned where there's no hope of life, even in those moments I am making sure my word does what it's supposed to do. Ezekiel declared in back, back in chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, None of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. Now there, it's a word of punishment. But the point is still the same. God's spoken it. It's going to happen. So what, is, what can you do when you're the prophet? And God has called you to a simple obedience. Well, you give a response of immediate efficacy. Look in verses 7 and 8. So I prophesied as I commanded. Because there's nothing else you can do at that point, right? When God gives you a word, you have to speak it. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. Behold, a rattling. And bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinos on them. And the flesh had come upon them and the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Do you see what's happening? Suddenly, bone starts to match up with bone. Somehow, I'm not quite sure how, because where does God get the cartilage? But cartilage starts to meld those bones together to form joints. Muscles begin to form, blood vessels. Organs. Where's he getting this stuff? It ain't in that valley of dry bones. All there are there are dry, brittle bones. Bones that couldn't hold together anything. And yet God's holding them together, pulling them together, forming them together to form these bodies. If you've ever messed with a a dry bone of any kind, you know they get holes in them. And they break apart. That word dry, that doesn't just mean with nothing on them. It means with no marrow in them. I don't know if you've ever had to have your bone marrow sampled. But they got to really get in there to get that stuff. These things are so dry, there's nothing left. And somehow, he pulls them together. Even as the prophet is declaring the word of the Lord, the bones begin to come together, flesh is built on them. God does not waste time performing his work. Even as he's declaring, as I prophesied, this started to happen. He can't even get the words out of his mouth before God begins to do his work. When the man of God performs acts of obedience before him, God begins working to accomplish his will. Sometimes, as here, the effects are immediately noticed. Now, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're more covert and they take time, but make no mistake about it, God is already working. And then, because oftentimes one measure, one action of obedience is not enough, God gives Ezekiel a mission of additional obedience. Verse 9, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Almost never in the Christian walk is one single act of obedience enough for God to, to completely resolve a situation. Mark that down. It will always require a consistent obedience. It's not instantaneous. It's not just add water. It's a uh, what Nietzsche would call what Nietzsche would call a long obedience in the same direction, a constant sort of obedience that keeps going, keeps going, keeps going until God finally brings it apart. I've heard of people who have prayed for their spouses, or prayed for a child, or prayed for a parent, or someone for years and years and years before they finally come to faith. It's that kind of obedience the kind that doesn't give up, the kind that doesn't quit. Sometimes the desire for instant gratification leads us to commit only one act and quit. We arrogantly expect God to instantly perform his work with little more than a lifting of our own fingers as though God has to honor our little bit. We say little is much when God is in it. That doesn't mean we only do little. It doesn't mean we only give little. It doesn't mean we only sacrifice little. It doesn't mean that little is all God asks of us. What that means is when all you have is little, you have much. God has ordained that his work will happen through the efforts of man. Whether he decides to be a willing participant or not, just ask Pharaoh. He wasn't so willing. But boy, did God use him anyway. God is capable of using both the repentant and the obstinate, both the soft-hearted and the hard-hearted, both the willing and the rebellious. Jonah was a prophet determined not to go to Nineveh until he got a free ride. Moses used excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. Five different excuses he uses. (laughs) And guess what? He still ends up leading Israel anyway. Obedience is never a single occurrence. Obedience, to be valid, to be effective, must be drawn out in consistent repetition over vast periods of time. And the result of that obedience was a restoration of genuine life. Verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Once the bodies have been assembled, then comes the breath. By the way, the same word for breath is the same word the Hebrews used for life. He calls out to the wind some your version may even have wind it's all the same word he calls out to the winds the winds start to blow and it's the breath of god Out of the despair and hopelessness of a valley of bones rises an army quickened by God's Spirit. Maybe Jesus was picturing this scene when he said in John 10.10, "The thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Maybe what he was saying is that when God breathes a Spirit on us, we become alive in the most real possible sense of that word. Irenaeus was an early saint. He was one of the key fathers of the early church, he said this, for the glory of God is a living man and the life of man consists in beholding God. You see, when God gets the most glory is when man really lives. And when man really lives, it's because, it's because he knows God. No other, no, there's no other life that compares to that kind of life. Then look in verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, now he starts to apply it. You've seen this great thing. And he says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. There was a common saying in the exile. that They were dried bones. More than ever before, the people of Israel needed a source of hope and inspiration. Funny thing about inspiration. You know what that word means? To breathe into. Israel needed genuine life. The life that only God through his own spirit can give. And that life would lead to a hope of future glory. Verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people. Prophecy turned from within the present experience toward the object. The exiles themselves. God never gave the prophets vision without some sort of call to share what they learned. In this case, God promises to restore Israel not only to the land, but to the life. to The faithfulness to which she had been called. God will put His Spirit into them and will establish them in their own land. There's a corollary to this in our day. God never reveals His Scripture with us without expecting us to share it. God never tells us His Word for us to keep it to ourselves. To hear the Word of God and not declare it is both a lack of faith and a lack of character. All in all, all of this leads to a knowledge of God's purpose. Verses 13 and 14. I already read 13 you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O oh my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Why would God spend so much effort on a people that constantly rebelled against Him? they would know him God's efforts culminate in his people knowing him and making him known to others the valley of the dry bones not only tells me that God is interested in breathing life into something where all hope for life has been completely lost rotted away by eons of time dried up by the scorching heat, brittled and broken across a valley floor. God wants to revive the dry bones. But it's not just about reviving reviving the dry bones. It's about what He does with us after He revives us. He is going to revive His people. He is going to return them to their land. Even today, that is not fully fulfilled. You may have heard of the expression, the lost tribes of Israel. Even today, there are people, descendants from Israel, from Judah, who still ain't home. Who still have not been returned to their land. Who still have not been revived. There is coming a day when God will move among His people to bring them back to life completely and holy, But there's also coming a day when that work will happen among us. When God will not only take Israel, but God will take the church and bring it back to life. We're not really dead. But I'm afraid if God doesn't act soon, we may as well be. And I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the big C church. I'm afraid that if God doesn't do something, we are completely and totally sunk. We'll be overwhelmed by the culture. It won't take long. It's already started. Many congregations, especially here in the West, have fallen prey to a dry bones sort of mentality. We're losing the culture war. We're losing the political war. We're losing the spiritual war. We're losing the moral war. We're losing all sorts of places. And there is no hope for us. We just got to try to hold it together a little while longer. Maybe Jesus will come back soon and But until then, we're just, no. We can't act that way, y'all. We cannot be that way. The valley of the dry bones teaches me that God is not dead, even no matter how hopeless the situation may be. That God is not done with His people. That even if it looks dead, it doesn't matter. Because God isn't done. Are we going to be the kind of church that lets the bones rot? are we going to be the kind of church that calls out to them, that brings them the word of God, that leads them to life? Are we going to be the ones to let the decay of society ruin everything around us Till it eventually gets us. Are we going to be the ones to call to the wind, breathe on these bones that they may live? I, I know the choice that we want to say. And with God's spirit, with us proclaiming his truth, we will. At least as long as I'm here, we will. The valley of the dry bone shows me something else. It shows me that sometimes we may not understand what we're doing. Why in the world would God want me preach to a valley full of dry bones? Why in the world would God want me to prophesy when there's no hope? Why in the world would God want me to reach out to people I've been trying to reach for the last 30, 40 years that still aren't listening to me? Why in the world would God want me to have another conversation with my child, or with my parent, or with my friend, or with my coworker, or with my neighbor who keeps rejecting Christ. Those bones are dried, They're, there's nothing left. I guess what you've got to ask yourself is can these bones live? Do we believe that God is capable of bringing death to life? I know one that can answer yes. In fact, I am one who could answer yes. But I know one. who in every sense can say absolutely. Father, I pray that we would be the kind of church that would magnify you, that would glorify your son by proclaiming him to the world. It wouldn't be ashamed to tell anybody, anywhere, anytime, what you've done that wouldn't second-guess ourselves and think, well, maybe, maybe these bones are just too dried. Maybe they're too dead. Maybe they're too far gone. Father, I pray that we would not be those kind of people. Father, I pray that we would be people of faith who would prophesy to the bones. Pray that we would prophesy to the wind. Pray that we would speak your words in the valley of death and that as a result we would see life. God, I know you wrote this to Israel and I don't want to discount that. part of me can't help but think that there's more than just ethnic israel involved in this so father i pray we would be true to your word and when we stare at the valley of dry bones whether wherever that may that valley may be and you ask us the question can these bones live we will have faith to obey you to make it so. You're the one who gives life. But Lord, you've chosen to use us. May we be faithful in what you've given us to do. So we can bring you glory. These things we beg of you Help us be the prophets that see the dry bones come to life. Help us be your people bringing hope to the hopeless, bringing rest to the weary, bringing life to the dead. Use us Your great name will be praised. You're big enough to do it. So, Lord, you be God. And may we be faithful to obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.